there's a young shepherd boy from Bethlehem, and he's secretly anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king over Israel, even though Saul is basically functioning as the king at the same time. And Saul's been stripped of his duties because of his direct disobedience to God's instructions, so God uses this unknown youngster to be his next king, and the young man's name is David, and he transforms from this unknown man to this legendary warrior because he kills a a giant named Goliath, which is a story we looked at last week in chapter 17. And uh, chapter 18 is really an extension of chapter 17. We don't know how much time passes between Goliath being killed and some of these next stories that we're going to be looking at. Uh, They kind of read as if one story is happening right after another, but more realistically, it's probably better to, to assume that these are months or even years that are passing by as we go throughout these these stories. And the first thing that the storyteller wants us to know, uh, we're in chapter 18 of of 1 Samuel. He wants us to know that Jonathan, who is Saul's son, becomes very good friends with David. And he has become such good friends with him uh, that we read in the first verse that Jonathan becomes one in spirit with David and he loves him as himself. Now, when you love someone as yourself, you look after your friend as much as you look after yourself, which is exactly what we see Jonathan do throughout these next stories. So as a sign of Jonathan's love for David, he takes the robe off of his back, he gives it to David, and then he gives him a number of other valuable things as well. And this would be kind of be like, you know, in our day and age, uh, you give your friend your, your favorite jacket, uh, which, which I heard happened uh, through Jericho's lost and found bin earlier this week, uh, where a jacket was given and then re-gifted and taken back again or something like that. You know, you'd give, you'd give the keys to your car, maybe, to, to your best friend. Um, uh, of course, obviously, David would have half of the BFF heart necklace, and, and Jonathan would have the other. That's, I don't even need to mention that. Uh, you, access to your refrigerator at all times. Best friends do that, right? And, and, and so these guys are, are so well connected together, they actually make a covenant. And, and we'll see this throughout the rest of the story, how closely Jonathan and David relate to one another. But Jonathan isn't the only one who loves David at least at this part in the story. His, his father, Saul, who's the king, is a huge fan of David because David is good at everything that he does. And every time Saul gives David an assignment, he is successful and this makes the king happy and well-liked. And so at this part of the story, Jonathan and him are great friends. Jonathan's father, the king, loves David. And, and we find out because David is so successful at what he does, everyone he comes in contact with, uh, people in, in the army, various soldiers, Saul's attendants, common people, everyone likes David. And then something happens. And this one thing for as big or as little as it may have been back then It changes how Saul feels about David. And then the next four chapters, 18, 19, 20, and 21, are filled with this heavy emotion. You can feel this civil unrest and this tension and and all of this bitterness. And to give us a picture of what this may have looked like, we're going to take a a few minutes to look at the Bible miniseries, which we visited before in this this series. As you'll see, as you have your Bibles open, um, this is not necessarily exactly how we read it through the Bible. Some of the stories are kind of combined into one, and some of them are omitted. But what I love about this is it gives a very vivid depiction of what the emotion may have looked like and felt like. So let's take a look. 
David! Come here. So... Once again, you are our champion. You have killed thousands. Tens of thousands. Of course. Tens of thousands. Our people are very grateful to you. The Lord blessed us all. I would like to reward you. I offer you my daughter, Michal. I'm very honored, Majesty. David, we're brothers now. <laughs> In return, 100 dead Philistines. Hmm? What say you? One hundred dead Philistines slain by your own hand. Father, this risked his life enough, no? What if he doesn't return? I shall return. God willing. don't you? I do. As Abel no doubt once loved Cain. He wants our crown. Don't you see? No. He's loyal to us both. Nonsense. mementos for you. And these. Trophies taken from each of their bodies. From a hundred men? Two hundred. God was with me. Michal.
Father, what demons possess you? If it wasn't for him, we would all be slaves and you would not be king. And with him, you never will be. King wishes to see David. He can't. He's not well. Not well! Not well, you say? Well, well, we shall see. We shall see. Not well. David! You have helped him escape. You would rather be queen than see your own father king. No! You would betray your own brother, father! You need to rest now! Even my own children plot against me! David! David! Where you go, I shall hunt you down! How could this happen? You know, what could possibly drive Saul to the point of wanting to kill David? The man who gave him everything that he had at that moment. Well, the answer according to 1 Samuel 18 is a song. According to the story, as Saul's army returns home from that famous battle against Goliath and the Philistines, the women of Israel greet the men. And they come with singing and dancing. And you have to think about this scene. I mean, the, the, the men have been out at war for however long, and, and they're victorious, and they come back. And the, the women are so overcome with emotion, they begin singing songs. These are, these are husbands, fathers, uh, sons, uncles, cousins. It must have been an incredibly joyous occasion. And so they sing songs in celebration for the victory and for the safety of the army. But I bet no one had any idea how one song that they sang in particular would have such an impact on the rest of their lives. The lyrics of the song go like this. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now Saul loved everything about this song except for the ending. Before David had killed Goliath, he was a nobody. He was unknown. He couldn't even leave his father's house without special permission. And now David is inspiring songs to be written about him. And this makes Saul so angry that he thinks to himself, they've credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can David get besides the kingdom? And from this point all, from this point on, Saul keeps a close eye on David and he watches him in a new way with suspicion, with fear, but most of all, with jealousy. Now, all of us have had songs get stuck in our head. All of us have songs that we don't like, right? For Saul, though, this was a combination of the two. It was a song that he couldn't shake from his head, and it was a song that he absolutely despised. Now, I was thinking earlier this week about uh, some of the songs that pop into my head, uh, some of the ones that I can't, 
I just can't stand it all. And I'm sure you're probably starting to think about some of the songs that go through your head. There's a lot of them. Uh, then I did what I should not have done. I Googled annoying songs. I Googled songs that get stuck in your head. And I was reminded of ones that thankfully I'd forgotten, like the Barbie song from the late 90s. That one was terrible. Uh, the one that first came to my mind without looking is a Cher's song, Do You Believe in Life After Love? I hate that song. She just says that over and over and over again. I think, yes, I do. Let's go to the next song. Enough already. Uh, kids, what does the fox say? You might love it. I'm guessing your parents hate it. Um, there was the one a few years ago, Who Let the Dogs Out? Ooh, thankfully, that only lasted for a few months before we, most of us at least, moved on from that. Uh, those of you who have been to amusement parks recently, it's a small world. I'm guessing that's one of the ones that stays in your head and takes a while to get out. But the one that I was reminded of, thankfully I'd forgotten about it, uh, but I was reminded of once again is called Friday. Um, the song that a lot of teenagers loved that came out a few years ago, I found out on YouTube. And if you've never heard of it, don't go there. Don't, don't put it in your head. It's extremely catchy. It will get into your head after you listen to it about once or twice. On YouTube, there are three times the amount of dislikes as there are likes for that song. Uh, it was very, very popular, but hated quite a bit. For Saul, this is the worst of both combinations. He despises this song, and yet he can't shake it from his head. The song is sung in verse 7, and then in verse 8, it's almost like Saul's already singing it himself. He repeats the song. And strangely enough, this song doesn't just stay localized, it spreads throughout the region. This song is listed two more times. It's sung twice more in, in 1 Samuel. Once is in chapter 21. The servants of King Eshish of Gath, when they encounter David, uh, they say to the king, hey, isn't that the David from that song that the Israelites used to sing? And it happens later on in chapter 29 with the Philistines. They hear about David approaching and they remember this song as well. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. It's written by local artists, but it becomes a hit throughout the region. Now, we don't know if it was the tune that was really great, uh, if it was who was singing it, uh, but we know that no one, no one in the region suffers from this song more than King Saul. It never stops playing. It functions like another annoying song, the song that never ends. And in a tragic way, this song begins to drive Saul mad. And it may not even have to do with the actual lyrics. It has to do with Saul's perception of the lyrics. Saul becomes jealous of David. And this jealousy begins to twist and poison his life. Now, jealousy is a common experience, but it's actually quite misunderstood because of how closely related jealousy is to envy. We experience envy when we want something that someone else has. I wish I had Brad Sumner's energy. I wish I had April Ferguson's multitasking skills, who currently is up in the nursery, no surprise, uh, looking after not only her own children, but many other. I wish I had Walter Gorlitz's hairline. These are all things that I wish I have, all examples of envy. These are not confession issues. These are examples of envy. You can also be envious, though, if you wish for someone else not to have something. So an example of that, again, pure example, I, you know, I would really just love the coffee machines to break this week so that no one gets coffee next week. Envy is, is a, in a way, it's, it's wanting to be happy by having something that someone else has, 
or it's wanting to be others as unhappy as you are by them not having what they currently have. Envy is our reaction to lacking something, but jealousy is our reaction to the threat of losing someone or something. So uh, a good example of, of jealousy is I was just watching this movie the other day because our son finished reading the book with us, Stuart Little. Uh, the movie is based on Snowbell, that, that cat, who basically, it's, it's all about his jealousy. His relationship with his family is, at th- is threatened because Stuart Little enters their home. And so the rest of the story is about him trying to get rid of Stuart Little. Envy is a two-person situation. You want something that someone else has. Jealousy involves a third person. It's someone threatening what you think you have or what you are losing. So we become jealous when, when um, we're threatened by that third person. The older child feels threatened when the newborn baby enters the home because they have less time with their parents. Uh, we have uh, the employee becomes jealous because their coworker got the promotion. That employee was overlooked by their boss. And so uh, jealousy is our reaction to the threat of losing someone or something. The song that gets stuck in Saul's mind makes him jealous. And he feels, quite accurately as we'll see, that his power and his kingdom are slipping through his fingers and they're going right to David. Based on these stories, David kind of always functions like the third person. And at first, it works out great for Paul, or excuse me, for Saul. <laughs> you think of that name change with his, with his name. But for Saul, David being the third person is a great scenario at first. He's faced with Goliath and the Philistines. He can't do anything. And then along comes this shepherd boy to defeat Goliath. He is plagued with, with this disturbing spirit that, that makes his mind uh, difficult. To, it is a bit of a int- mental illness that he, that he has, apparently. And in comes David to play the harp and to soothe his soul. Third person both times, great results for Saul. But now things are a bit different. Now Saul is losing his popularity with the people because of David. Now Saul has some difficulties with his family relationships because he's not getting the attention that he used to get. And most significantly, now Saul is looking at his kingdom for himself and for his son Jonathan, and he's thinking to himself, David has the upper hand. This is not going to go well. Author Frederick Buechner, he loves to describe biblical characters in unique ways. And he sees that Saul swings back and forth from these extreme feelings about David. He loves him one moment, he hates him another. And it's almost like he's incapable of staying in the middle. He says that Saul hated David because he needed him, and he needed him because he loved him. And when he wasn't out to kill him every chance he got, he was hating himself for his own evil disposition. Saul is jealous. And Saul does what every jealous person does. He lets his jealousy drive his actions. And throughout this story, we see in in Saul's life, there's bitter war between him and the Philistines. We read earlier in in 1 Samuel that all the days of, of Saul, there's bitter war between Saul and the Israelites and between the Philistines. And so what does Saul do with David? Well, he chooses to take David. He empowers him with a, a thousand men, and he sends him far away. Now, you would think that David, as Saul's greatest asset, who has military strength, who has devotion from the army, uh, you would think that that's a very unwise choice, right? If you've got someone like David and you're the king, what would you do? 
you would entrust him with as many people as possible. You would keep him close at home. You would give him the assignment that's most important. But Saul isn't thinking like a wise king. He's thinking like a jealous one. And so Saul actually is willing to hurt himself and the people around him for the sake of his jealous ambitions. And the same thing happens to you and me when we choose to keep playing that jealousy song in our head over and over again. Well, Saul's first plan doesn't work. He may have tried to send David away to marginalize him or to lessen the media attention or something like that. We don't know for sure except for the reason that's given in verse 12. And it's quite a scary verse when you think about it. Uh, Verse 12 tells us that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had left Saul. That's his main fear. (laughs) God's left me and now God is, his spirit is on David. And Saul's fear is repeated two more times in this this chapter. And the reasons why Saul is afraid is because David is successful in everything that he does and because the Lord is with David. A wise king would surround himself with as many Davids as possible. Capable people, God-fearing people, spirit of Lord is definitely with him and he's successful. A wise king would want as many Davids with him as he could. But a jealous king would send these type of people away. But Saul has other plans of getting rid of David, and so each one becomes more and more severe. Each one becomes more and more disturbing. It begins with his eldest daughter, Mereb. He offers her to David in marriage, and uh, just when the wedding day comes, Saul changes his mind, and he gives his daughter to another groom. We're not really sure why. There isn't a whole lot said in that part of the story, but it certainly looks like Saul's playing the power card, and he's starting to manipulate what he wants to do. Uh, we saw on the short piece there on the film, uh, the next daughter in line is, uh, is Micah. And so this is another chance now that Saul gives David to become his son-in-law. And so we saw how that story played out. Or the, the two reasons, I mean, you talk, every, many of us have father-in-laws and, and you may think your father-in-law is bad, but two reasons. Saul just, uh, we, we know his thoughts here in the story. Number one reason well, I'd love my daughter to be a, to be a snare for him. That's, that's a great engagement idea, right? Boy, if my own offspring can make his life difficult, that would be perfect. That'd be my perfect plan. The second reason is, well, you know what? I'm not going to do this myself, but I'm going to put him in the hands of the Philistine. I'm going to let danger come upon him. He'll perish because of what the Philistines do. And we saw what happens in that story. He says, I want 100 men killed. And David goes off, the Lord is with him, he's successful, 200 are killed, and he's left with the same situation. And his jealousy just continues to grow. That would have been a really awkward engagement party, by the way. So, so Saul, uh, he's, got, um, he, he's got another idea, and he turns the dial up this time, okay? It doesn't work to send him away, it doesn't work to marry him off to one of my daughters, so you know what? He develops an assassination plan. That's exactly what it is. He tells his, his closest officials, including Jonathan, hey, I want David killed. Kill this man. And so uh, Jonathan, he's the first to intervene. He warns David, and then he tells his father, yeah, what are you doing? Everything that you have is because of David. He's a great man. Um, no, you can't do this. And it seems at first, at least, that Saul okay, you know, he seems to go along with it or he deceives his son, we're not quite sure. And then later on, as we saw in the film as well, his, his daughter, uh, Michal, she, she hides away David and, and she deceives her father so that David can run away. Things keep getting worse though. 
Saul is now enraged. His jealousy has, has taken on many other horrible characteristics. Uh, he thinks that his son and his daughter have now betrayed him because they've blocked everything that he is trying to do to satisfy his ambition to get David. Towards the end of chapter 19, uh, this is in verse 18 if you want to follow along in, in your Bible. This is, is t- at least uh, the progression of the story, the most disturbing part of the story. David escapes. He escapes, and that's where we left the scene with, with Saul threatening him. And, and David goes and he finds Samuel. Samuel's the prophet. Samuel's the one that, that anointed David. He finds Samuel, and he does what any of us would do. He tells him the story. Like, you would not believe what is going on here. Saul is trying to kill me. And so word gets back to Saul that David and Samuel are at this specific city, and they're together. And, uh, and what happens is Saul sends out men. He sends out troops to capture David. And this is a really strange thing that happens. So uh, what happens is these men, they, they reach the spot where Samuel is, and Samuel just happens to be leading a group of, it, it's basically a worship time. It'd almost be like a prayer gathering. Uh, the word is prophesying, which is sometimes a little hard to understand exactly what that means in our context here. But Samuel's leading this group of, of people, and uh, the men come, and remember, they're coming with direct orders from the king to capture David. And they come into the scene and what happens to them? They start prophesying too. It's like people that would, would hate Christians and they go to a Christian gathering, they go to some prayer meeting and they start praying. Like it's, it's kind of a, a similar situation. So Saul, he finds this out. Word gets back to him. He's got people who are, are, are spying things out and talking to him. And so he sends a second group of men and the same thing happens. And then he sends a third group of men and the same thing happens. And after this third time, Saul says, I'm going myself. He's determined to get David, so he goes to the place to find David. Now, before we keep going, think about the implications of this for just a minute. Saul's men are on a mission, and they fail because they prophesy. How crazy is this? They can't accomplish what Saul told them to do because God directly intervenes. God holds them in some sort of state of prophetic ecstasy. It's, it's like they're in some sort of sci-fi force field. I don't even know what it would look like. I'm interested, I'll be honest. I'd like to know what that looked like. Uh, but it's, it's, it's like they, they literally, they, they can't do anything. And this is at the hands of God. But it doesn't stop Saul. This is the clearest sign yet of all these things. I mean, you could, you could uh, uh, blame um, God's provision in, in, Saul, in David's life and his, his battle victories as, you know, happenstance perhaps, or just the, the Israelite warriors are so great. You could blame your son and your daughter for not trusting you anymore and for liking David more. That's fine. But when you send troops and they aren't able to do what they're able to do because they get, they get caught up prophesying, isn't that not a, a, a very clear intervention by God? Not just once, but three times? But Saul's jealous, and his heart is poison, so he, he goes there himself. And once he arrives, it shouldn't surprise us that he falls into some sort of trance as well. And while he's prophesying, this gets even weirder, he starts ripping off his clothes, and he strips himself naked, and he lays down on the ground for a whole day. And the people who see him, this is the king, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, this same saying happens in chapter 10. So this is the second time that people have, in a sense, sung this song. 
And so what happens in the context of chapter 10 is Saul has been anointed. We read in that passage that God actually changes Saul's heart, and then he begins to prophesy with some other prophets. And we get that real sense of, yeah, he's got prophetic gifts. Uh, The Lord is with him. The Spirit is on him. Here, the same words are being used, but we know in in the progression of this story that the Spirit of God has left Saul. And he's been poisoned by his jealous ambitions. So when the question is asked, is Saul also among the prophets? The new answer is probably, no, Saul isn't a prophet. Saul is insane. And with Saul lying naked on the ground, David escapes once again. And Saul's search continues. A jealous king running around the country for the sake of the throne that's already been taken away from him. Now, there's more. There's more in chapter 20 and more in chapter 21. In chapter uh, 20, Jonathan, again, tries to kind of talk some sense into his father, and uh, Saul just lashes out in violent anger. He throws a spear at Jonathan now. He calls him all sorts of names. Uh, Then in 22, a tragic, tragic story. Uh, A priest who provides David and his men uh, with some consecrated food and and with a weapon, Goliath's sword as it happens to be, Uh, a spy sends that message back to Saul, and Saul ends up having that priest and his father's entire family killed. Uh, 85 priests are killed. Uh, These are people commissioned to to intercede on God's behalf and to act as as God's people for the community. And then an entire city is is wiped out as well. Uh, Women, children, men, and all the animals. How could this happen? This is Saul, the leader of Israel. Jealousy is a powerful thing. It can begin with something as silly as a song And then it can destroy many lives. But before you ignore this story with the thought that you aren't capable of such terrible actions, I mean, yeah, maybe you've got jealousy from time to time, but you aren't wiping out an entire city, right? You aren't verbally assaulting someone in your family. Uh, you uh, You aren't going completely against what God is doing in some sort of intervention or something like that. Before you just discredit this story and your capacity to be jealous as Saul is jealous. Consider this principle that comes from the story. Saul is convinced that David is the problem, but he makes the same mistake that we do when we become jealous. We think our problem is with another person when our problem is really with God. Saul goes after David because he's convinced that David is the problem, but his jealousy is really the result of an unwillingness to embrace God's plan. He has a God problem not a David problem. If we remember from the story, God has already told, uh, already told Saul that the kingdom of Israel is no longer his to rule. He took away his kingship. Saul already knew that another man was being prepared by God to become king, a man after his own heart. And judging by all that has happened and, and however course of time we have here, you would think that Saul already is figuring this out, that David is going to be the next one on the throne. But but Saul chooses to fight God's plan. His bitterness towards God fuels his jealousy of David, and he can't let it go. Do you know what jealousy is really about? Jealousy is trying to take back what you think is yours from the God who owns everything. Jealousy is trying to take back what you think is yours from the God who owns everything. 
Jealousy assumes that God's gifts are our possessions. Jealousy assumes that our wisdom is better than God's wisdom. Jealousy assumes that we are capable of taking something that was never really ours in the first place. Saul's position as king was not his right. He didn't own that. It was a position entrusted to him by God for a time. And when he disobeyed, when he no longer obeyed God, God took that opportunity away and he gave it to someone else. Saul's children are not his possessions. He does not own those relationships. Wouldn't you want your son to be friends with David? Wouldn't you want your daughter to be married to someone like David, who is humble, who God is with, who is successful, who is well-liked? Wouldn't you like that? But Saul is thinking like a jealous man. He's not thinking like someone who has God's ideas in mind. When you recognize that God owns everything, it can give you that perspective, but not when you're jealous. Andy Stanley has said about jealousy that a good way of of applying it and understanding it is the phrase, God owes me. Jealous people think, God owes me. And when we let this foolish song play in our heads over and over again, we feed our jealousy to the point of it becoming completely out of control and us not being able to handle it any longer. Jealousy is trying to take back what you think is yours from the God who owns everything. Now, it's pretty easy from our perspective to read these, these chapters in 1 Samuel and to turn King Saul into a pinata, you know, and bat him around a little bit and say, oh, he's so delusional and, 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 you know, how could he be so jealous and how could he do that? That's absolutely terrible. And, of course, you know, we're not in his, in his shoes, right? We're in our own shoes. So what is it about our lives where we can see the poison of jealousy creeping in? It's not always easy to see jealousy in our own lives but sometimes it can be there. So my question for you is, uh, we all have challenges with people, right? There's people that we don't like. There's people that we don't get along with. There's people who rub us the wrong way or people who we avoid. As you think about people like these, is your problem really with that person? Or is the problem really a jealousy problem? Is the problem really with God? Could it be that your problem is that he's gaining more attention from one of your close friends? Could it really be because she's demanding more time from your mom that used to be time spent with you? Could the issue really be uh, that the neighbor, that the reason why you don't like the neighbor who's so warm-hearted and everyone likes him on your street, could could the real reason be that everyone talks kindly about him and you seem to go unnoticed? Is it possible that the problem has less to do with the person you think you don't like and more to do with your own jealousy? Uh, Several years ago, I was visiting at my parents' place. Um, Melissa and I had not been married for long, and we were down there, and they were having a big get-together, and there was there was people that I grew up in the church and high school friends, family, a whole bunch of different people, and I was having conversations with, with everyone as we were eating food and having a a nice time. And as I was talking with my high school friends, this was shortly after I had graduated from university. So uh, my friends and I, we had our four-year degrees. Uh, this was the time now for t- to get jobs, start career paths, all that sort of thing. I was in a transition phase. I was uh, starting my, my master's degree, and it was the summertime. And so I was working a, a low-paying, 
uh, labor job in the summer and just trying to kind of figure out, you know, what was happening to me. And I'm interacting with my high school friends. And these are people that I went to school with, I grew up with, I know their study habits, I know their character, uh, I know their grades, and I'm measuring them all against mine, and I'm much better than they are, right? And, and then they start telling me about their, their entry-level jobs, you know, these jobs that they have where they're making, you know, $52,000, $48,000. And that's curious to me because I'm making, you know, slightly above minimum wage mowing, mowing grass. And, and so I'm processing this conversation and, and uh, I happen to start a conversation with uh, a friend of mine, one of my, my, my parents' friend. He was, he was the, the Bible study leader in our home for like 10 years. So this guy was a friend of mine. I babysat his children. Uh, he was like a father figure to me. And so we had a conversation and he must have asked me, how I was doing or what was going on uh, because I remember expressing to him a little bit of my frustration. Like, you know, I'm talking with all my friends and, and they've got these great jobs and they're making all this money and I don't really even know what I want to do with my life and, and they've got everything in order. And I remember distinctly, I'll never forget this. He looked at me, he probably laughed at me too, but I, I remember he smiled at me and he says, Keith, there will always be someone who makes more money than you. It was such a simple phrase, right? There's always going to be someone who makes more money to you than you do. But it, it just, it exposed something in my heart. Now, was I envious of my friends and their jobs? Oh yeah, I'm very sure I was. But also what I remember is that it, it showed me jealousy. I felt the threat of not getting what I thought I deserved and what I thought should be mine. I thought God owed me a job with a clear career path like my friends had. But this man's words revealed to me that my problem wasn't with my friends, it was with God. You see, jealousy is trying to take back something that you think is yours from the God who owns everything. Now, some of you might already be thinking about some areas in your life where you recognize there's some jealousy and you're wondering what to do next, because it's a common problem that happens to all of us. Our, our response should be to confess. We should confess the areas in our life when we are jealous, and we should talk to God about it. Jealousy is a sin. It misses the mark. It's listed as, as a sin, something that, that displeases God. Now, the exception for, for jealousy is when it uh, involves a covenant, such as a marriage covenant. And we see God described as a jealous God, which is a little bit of a, of a confusing characteristic of God. Uh, the understanding there is for when there's that covenant relationship uh, and there's another, a third party that, that threatens that, uh, God, in a sense, is saying in that context, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines while your heart is, it goes off to another God or to another idol of some sorts. I, I will be invested in this. But that's the exception. As you think about jealousy in your own life, it needs to be confessed to God. And as you confess and as you uh, think about what that's done in your life, it, you may feel prompted by God's Spirit to ask people for forgiveness. Because when we act on jealous ambitions and when, when we act out of that and, and, and we do some of the, the same things, not literal things here, but, but some of the, the heart things that Saul does in this story, we very often will wrong others. And so it may be that you need to go ask others to forgive you and to confess to them how you have been feeling and what you have been doing. And the good news is 
that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, each of us can be cleansed from all of our sin when we take that step and just saying, God, I missed the mark. I've been jealous. I don't want to harbor these feelings anymore. We can confess our sin and through the justice of Jesus, we can be forgiven. And as we follow Jesus in obedience, the Spirit of God will empower us to be freed from the poison of jealousy. So we're going to respond to today's message uh, with a couple of songs. And the first song that we're going to sing uh, speaks about the change that those of us will hopefully desire. Not to be people who are bound up by jealousy, but to be people who want to be cleansed. People who want to be freed from the inside out. And so whether you've been convicted of jealousy this morning or there's something else going on in your life and you feel like God is, is isolating that, I just encourage you to confess that to God and to ask him to restore you and to provide you with a path uh, to healthy living. And we've got people here who are available to pray with you. Gary and Betty will be on one side and uh, Pastor Brad and Katie Kwan will be on the other. And they're available to uh, listen to you Uh, to pray with you and to assist you as you do the work of examining your heart and becoming right before God. Let me close with prayer and then we will sing. Lord God, we thank you for this story. We thank you, God, that for as tragic as it was, how I think all of us can see part of Saul's struggles and part of his story in our own. And God, we don't want to let anything draw us away from being obedient to you. And so in those areas of our lives, Lord, where we see that there is jealousy, there is a resentment that we have that we think is for others, I pray, God, that we would just be led into that conversation with you of confessing that and being grateful to you, Lord, for what you have entrusted to us, what you have given to us for this time in our life. We thank you for your word of truth, Lord. Please guide us in it. Amen.